pray and then get back into things. How does that sound? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we ask you to be with us now. Uh, please send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and guide. Help us to understand the blessing that you have for us through the Holy Spirit and to incorporate it into our lives uh, as a church here in Castle Rock. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, who runs the church? Got some different answers up there, right? A pretty old answer to the question is the successors of Peter, right? Right. The idea is that Peter laid hands on somebody who laid hands on somebody who laid hands on somebody all the way down to somebody who's supposed to be running the church today. Right. And uh, you see Peter here with with the sword and, you know, he's he's good to go. And so is anybody who's with him. Right. That's that's one answer to the question. OK. And then there's there's an answer that says, well, it's not so much Peter's successor, but all the bishops. OK. And the bishops are supposed to be the ones that run the church, you know, these people who've had hands laid on them. Uh, that kind of goes back to Peter too, but we'll just throw it up there as a different answer because they do it a little bit differently in the chirps, churches that are run by the bishops. Um, and then we have other churches. Uh, I believe we may be meeting in the building of one right here and now. I'm not sure, but I'm just making an educated guess that they would say that the elders uh, should be the ones who run the church. There's a a board of elders, and they're ultimately the people who run the, the local church, okay? Here with, the, with your bishops, right, you've got, uh, you know, larger church organizations than just the local church, all right? Uh, now, in many churches, though, however, it really becomes the pastor who runs the church, right? And, and by and large, what the pastor says goes, right? Uh, that, that, that you might think that that would be a, a model of church government that would appeal to me, but, but actually, <laughs> I think that one's a little scary. Um, and then finally, uh, you might say that people who are the talented should run the church, right? People who have uh, the education, right, the money, uh, particular skills, right? If, if they're really, you know, the bright shining stars, the elite, we might call them, they should be the ones who run the church. And uh, ultimately, though, if you're really democratic, you could say that all the church members should be running the church in some way, right? And, and many church governance structures include some kind of a democratic element in them where things are put to votes and maybe even votes of all of the church members. So while I want to say that church governance is fine and good and we need to have organization as a church, this is not really, in fact, answers to the question of who runs the church, okay? <laughs> These are answers to the questions of how do human beings contribute to church organization. But for the question of who wants to run the church, we have to go somewhere else. And I'm going to take us back to old Corinth, all right? This is a picture of good old Corinth. There's, there's new Corinth, which is down the hill from here because the sea levels have dropped, okay? But back in the day, this was old Corinth. And here's a, a picture of the temple of, um, I'm trying to remember what Greek god it was, uh, but it's a temple to a Greek god. And actually, here's, here's one I'm just going to throw in for free. If you look up on top of the hill, right up there, there's a Turkish fortress, that was built when they were fighting with the Greeks. That's much more modern. Uh, but old Corinth, if you, if you go read the books of First and Second Corinthians in the New Testament, you will realize that this is the problem church, okay? 
of the ancient world. All right. It's the church with problems. It, it, today, it would be the church that, you know, when the pastors get together at the conference meetings, they all kind of say, oh, that's the one I don't really want to go to. Right. Because there's there's a church that's got issues. All right. But the Apostle Paul was a pastor. Right. He was many things, but he was also a pastor. And he was gone from this church, but he still felt responsibility for it. He still was looking after it. And so he was doing his pastoral ministry by letters in the same way today that we might have to do it through Zoom or something like that. You know, he couldn't always be with the people he was pastoring. He was writing these letters. And um, we're going to learn a little bit about church organization from the church with problems, okay? Who runs the church? We're going to learn about it from the church with problems because that's who Paul had to explain it to the most. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up. If you have them in codex form, you can flip the pages. If you have it in digital form, you can open your Bible app and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll start with the second half of verse 3. When you have it, say amen. If you need more time, say mercy. All right, everybody's got it. Let's go ahead then. Okay. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Now, who's Paul and who's Apollos? Well, of course, Paul's the one writing the letter here, but Apollos was another famous missionary in the early church, someone whom Paul had actually reached indirectly through some people that he had taught about Jesus. And Apollos had a ministry much like Paul's going around and teaching the gospel, baptizing people, doing these kinds of things. And they had an argument about then who should be running the church, right? Is it Apollos because he came and did so much for us? Or is it Paul who was, you know, the kind of the first one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? Well, kind of. We'll, We'll not go down that road. Who runs the church? What's Paul's answer? Does he say it's me or does he say it's Apollos? He says neither. Keep going. Verse 5. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers, that is servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? Each one, one being Paul, one being Apollos, right? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Yeah. We we both had our parts to play, but who was really making sure that everything came together at the end of the day so that you people believed? It was God. So neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So You get the reward from the one for whom you're laboring, right? And the one who's laboring is the boss. He's the one who's running things. According to Paul, who is running the church? God. And we can have organization only to the extent that we are in alignment with what God is doing. God runs the church. But 
The question is how? How does that actually work? How does that really work? Right? I mean, it's a nice theory to say God runs the church, right? And we would all want to agree with that. But, you know, one time I was at General Conference and I, I was going through the exhibit halls there and they had a self-supporting ministry from somewhere in East Asia. And they had displayed prominently uh, the organizational chart of their ministry, right? And at the top of the organizational chart was God, Right? And then there's a line from God down to their, their director, you see? I mean, if only it were that simple, right? But how does God actually run the church? I think we can find more in 1 Corinthians. Paul comes down to it in chapter 12, okay? So you can zip over there, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant, I have to give some love to this side. So I'm going to preach over here. Sorry, folks online. I'm going to turn my back to you. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. Then he goes on not to talk about spiritual gifts, but something else. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the ancient world, in, as like ancient Rome and empire area, they had a saying, which is that Caesar is Lord. Okay? Caesar's, Caesar's the guy. He's running the show, right? Caesar's the big boss. Yeah? That was the slogan, Caesar is Lord. But he's saying that only by the Holy Spirit can someone come up against that slogan and actually confess that Jesus is Lord right? In other words, it's by the Holy Spirit that you first came to have a new allegiance in life, to start working for a different kingdom, to start actually having a different savior because they called Caesar the savior as well, right? So now we're working for Jesus. We're on his side. It's by the Holy Spirit. So how do you think if we got onto this team through the power of the Holy Spirit, how do we continue to play for the team? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he doesn't want them to be ignorant of something called spiritual gifts. Verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Notice that there's a, a, a Trinitarian statement here, isn't there? The same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God who works all in all. But of course, uh, you know, the Father and Jesus, they're up in heaven, right? Uh, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit down to be with us, to actually be the one here with us, giving us these different gifts, which are defined as ministries and activities and all the different things that we do in the church. The Holy Spirit is coordinating. Now, here's the problem that many churches have become functionally binitarian. All right? They might confess belief in the Holy Spirit, right? And say that God is three in one, but in the life of the church, they function as if the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. Okay? They're really into God the Father and how God has ordered creation, and they've studied deeply into how God has ordered creation, and they have all the technology and the procedures and the processes, right? 
And, and they're also really into the word of God, <laughs> Jesus Christ, right? Who's, who's revealed to us in scripture and they study the Bible and they have all the doctrines and all those things like, you know, it's, it's really kind of a, a head religion, isn't it? When, when it comes down to it, this functional binitarianism. But when it comes to how, how we're actually going to do the work of the church, right? How we're going to organize ourselves or even how we're going to persuade people who think differently than us, right? It, it, we, we think it's all up to us. In a way, functional binitarianism is like a functional deism because Jesus and the Father are up in heaven, right? They're out there and they're doing their thing there, but we act as if they've left everything down here up, up just up to us, right? It's all up to us. We have to make it, we have to push it through. And so a functionally binitarian church will actually find itself relying on things that are not of God in order to get the work done, right? There's, there are lots of arguments. There's lots of manipulation, right? There's strong arming of people. There's, you know, you know, things being done behind the scenes, right? There's like an inner circle and then an outer, you know, and nobody kind of, you know what I'm talking about, right? I, I, I'm, it's actually kind of sad to say that I can just kind of ask that question rhetorically in the Seventh-day Adventist church. You know, because our pioneers, I think, were not functionally binitarian in Seventh-day Adventism, right? They actually expected the Holy Spirit to show up and do things, right? That people would have dreams and visions and, right, that that should be followed. In the early Seventh-day Adventist movement, people actually received the gift of speaking in tongues, yeah? There was, there was there, uh, I'm aware of instances where uh, an early Seventh-day Adventist uh, got a message for somebody in an unknown tongue, and he gave the message in an unknown tongue, and then another person interpreted that message, and so the person knew that that was from God, and then they knew that they needed to heed the message and obey it. That the Holy Spirit would actually come and do these kinds. Do we expect the Holy Spirit to show up in our churches and actually do things? Or are we functionally binitarian? I hope not in Castle Rock. I hope not. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14. I'm going to skip over the whole list of spiritual gifts um, because lots of churches do these spiritual gifts inventories and things like that. right? We've actually even managed to turn spiritual gifts into a kind of a procedural thing with the spiritual gift inventories. Um, I think that spiritual gifts are maybe more fluid then the tests make them out to be. I think the Holy Spirit can give you what you need at the moment, and then when you need something else, he can give you that something else, okay? But Paul says here, he explains how the Holy Spirit organizes things. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. A functionally binitarian church has trouble handling differences, okay? A church that is able to allow the Holy Spirit to act can look at a difference that would otherwise be aggravating and say, well, I think God can work through that, right? He can actually come and make changes that need to be made so that that difference can be harmonious instead of destructive. Whereas if, if we're all here on our own, then we've got to, you know, sort out these differences ourselves. Boy, we, we work ourselves at all kinds of corners, the body's one. We're not all supposed to be the same in it, though. 
For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, you know, all these social differences, we're all still one. Uh, we could say in America now, whether Republican or Democrat, right? Uh, we were all baptized into one body and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Now, why does he say that we are made to drink of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever heard of drinking the Holy Spirit before? I mean, obviously, this is a spiritual metaphor, right? But I want to explain to you where the metaphor comes from. It's actually a long association in the scriptures between the Holy Spirit and water. Did you know that? There's a long association in the scriptures between the Holy Spirit and water, and it goes back to the very beginning in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says that this, at the beginning when God began to create the heavens and the earth, where was the Holy Spirit? Hovering over the waters. I think that should actually be Genesis 1, verse 2, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so the Holy Spirit is hovering over the water, the primordial ocean out of which God begins to create life, Okay. Isaiah 44, verse 3, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. This is a metaphor for what? I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. I believe this, this, this promise is, is fulfilled for those of us who receive the Holy Spirit after Jesus pours it out from heaven. Again, notice the, the water metaphor, right? And Mark chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, uh, um, pardon me, John the Baptist promises that I indeed baptized you with water, but speaking of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then I think in Luke it adds, and with fire, right? It's, so in a sense, when the, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples as tongues of fire, it was like a baptism. And what do you baptize with? Water. Acts chapter 10, verse 47, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, right? Peter is speaking to the Gentiles and they receive the Holy Spirit and they say, well, then how can we not baptize them? Even though they're Gentiles, they've received the Holy Spirit. So we can't deny them water. And finally, John chapter 7, 38 and 39, this is Jesus speaking. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. When you receive the Holy Spirit, it's as if there's living water flowing out of you, giving life to those around. The spirit is the one that gives life. This is, what, this is what the water thing is pointing toward. And not only in creation, but also in restoration, we see it in the book of Revelation, which is interestingly one of the most Trinitarian books of the Bible. And he showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There are different metaphors for the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation, but this is my favorite. Yeah. In the new world, in the world made new, new earth, there's going to be a throne where God and the Lamb sit. Who's the Lamb in Revelation? Jesus. 
So we have the Father, we have Jesus. Where's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's the river, bringing the blessings and the life of God to the whole world that is restored. Isn't that beautiful? This is especially potent, I think, to those of you who live in a place like Colorado. Yeah, where, where we were talking about drought, right? Um, and the, the, the ancient Near East is, is very similar, okay? The Mediterranean climate there can be quite dry and water can be quite uh, a trouble to obtain. When you get over the mountains on the other side from Jerusalem and go down by the Jordan, uh, you're, you're getting into the Judean wilderness there. And what you notice as you drive along is that there are lines of green going down the hills, yeah? Everything else is brown, but you'll see a line of green going down the hills. What does that mean? There's water there, right? They call it a wadi. And you can tell where the water flows, even if it isn't actually there right then and there, because you can see these green lines coming down. Water organizes life, yeah? Where the water goes in the desert, there's where the life is. Life follows water. And the same goes with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit organizes the life of the church. And we need to be always attentive to what it seems that the Holy Spirit is doing because that's where we need to be going as well. That's where we need to be flowing, as it were, along with the Holy Spirit. The difference between living material and dead material is organization. Did you know that? You can take the exact same chemicals, the exact same elements, all those things, put them in the same spot. They won't be alive unless they're properly set up and organized and running. That is what the Holy Spirit does for the church. How does that work? Uh, we're going to, again, go through a bunch of examples, this time from uh, Luke and Acts which are really part one and part two. Luke is the Jesus story. Acts is the church's story. See how the Holy Spirit organizes us. Luke chapter four, verse one. This is right after Jesus gets baptized. Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. When he got baptized, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That means that his consciousness had the Holy Spirit as a conversation partner. Did you know that that can happen for you as well? When you ask God to come and be a conversation partner with you, the Holy Spirit can come and give you thoughts, impressions, even words that can direct what you are meant to be doing. And what does the Holy Spirit do with Jesus after Jesus is baptized? He leads him out where? <laughs> to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And now we go into the temptations of Christ. It's the next part of the story. When you're led by the Holy Spirit, he sends you out to do battle with Satan. Okay? Now you're actually playing for the team. You're no longer just a bench warmer. Acts chapter 8, verse 29, Then the Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. Remember that one? He sends him out, road middle of nowhere. What am I doing here, Lord? And then he sees the chariot coming and the Holy Spirit then tells him, right? Actually gives him direction. Go and do this. Do we expect the Holy Spirit to do that in our lives? From time to, you know, can it happen? Are we open to that? If the Holy Spirit said something to you like that, would you listen? Or would you say, oh, yeah, that's just my mind playing tricks on me. 
with time, you can begin to recognize the call of God in your mind and in your life. Acts chapter 10, verse 19. While Peter thought about the vision, this is the same one, right, where they were preaching and the Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles, right? But, you know, this is way before where God's trying to break through his prejudices, right, with that vision of the unclean animals on the sheet. Well, Peter thought about the vision. The Spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. And then he gets the message. Hey, there's people at the door, right? When you start to see that when you follow those promptings, things are happening, then you realize, oh, the Holy Spirit is organizing stuff. We can do this. And then Acts chapter 13, verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now this is getting down to brass tacks, isn't it? For the Castle Rock Church here, right? Trying to figure out who God has called to do certain jobs, right? Who God is calling to be a pastor here at this church? Does the Holy Spirit have a part to play in it? Or is it all resumes and committees? You see what I'm saying here? Not that committees and resumes are bad, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I don't think actually elders and deacons and all those other ways of organizing the church are not all wrong either. The problem is, are we leaving room for the Holy Spirit to work in what we're doing? Are we listening for that guidance? Acts chapter 14, verses 39 to 40. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. That's interesting, isn't it? What would we do if God sent us another prophet? Is that something we'd be ready for? If God gave someone in this church a message in an unknown tongue and someone interpreted, is that something we'd be ready to handle? Paul says these are things that we should be earnestly desiring, especially that someone could prophesy. It's good to desire that the Holy Spirit would give you a powerful spiritual gift that you could use for God. But be careful because it seems like prophets have a miserable life. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be careful what you ask for when it comes to God, right? But not sometimes a gift of prophecy could just be something that, you know, the church needs to hear on occasion. Um, You know, I, I, I'll, I'll share an anecdote with you early in my ministry. I went to a church in, um, in Grand Prairie, Alberta, a Mennonite church, an evangelical Mennonite church that was holding an anniversary celebration for the building that they had purchased, which they had used as a community center, right? That they were doing like drug rehabilitation and all kinds of things in there. And they told the story of how they had found that building. They were looking for a place, their their church was just about to close. It had dwindled down to nothing, and they decided what they needed to do was liquidate their assets and do something that would be a blessing to the community. And they wanted to find a place where they could build the center like the one I just described. The pastor's wife, if I recall correctly, had a dream where she saw a piece of 
property. Was as if she was inside and she walked through and looked out a window and saw a particular view. And she reported this dream to the church and said, I think this is the property that we need to be looking for. The it was a pastor's daughter or some young gal was biking around town and found a building that was left open and was for sale. She went inside, walked through. It was as described in the vision. She looked out the window and she came and reported back to the church. This is a place that we need to purchase. And they went ahead and did that and had a successful ministry in that location. Their church grew up again and was revitalized. We talk about how a similar thing happened with Ellen White and the purchase of the property at Loma Linda and that kind of stuff, right? I mean, pretty remarkable things. But is that something that was only meant for the Seventh-day Adventist church in the 20th century or the 19th century? Or can it happen in the 21st century? I think we're commanded in Scripture to earnestly desire that these kinds of things will take place in our midst. Let's keep going. So how do we, how do we make that actually happen? Oh, I forgot one last point there. <laughs> but what? Let all things be done decently and in good order, right? The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of chaos, okay? And sometimes when churches get into the Holy Spirit, they get into chaos. I, I have to make that point, but I don't think that's our major problem in, in, in our Seventh-day Adventist churches today. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, in the Bible, there are ways that you can receive the Holy Spirit. One of them is to pray for the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to earnestly pray for the Holy Spirit. Another one is to fast, right? Now, fasting isn't a way of impressing God. I want to make that point clear. What fasting really is, is a way that we express to ourselves our dependence on God and remind ourselves how much we need God by taking away some of those things that we could otherwise think that we can't do without and relying on God. It helps put us in a right frame of mind. And finally, and this is an interesting one, in the, in the New Testament, uh, you can read about this, when people lack the Holy Spirit, even after they are baptized, the remedy is to lay hands on them. And laying hands is a way that you can communicate within the priesthood of all believers the blessing of God to people. And the blessing that they're asking for is the Holy Spirit. So you may need to do this in your congregation today. If somebody says, you know, I, I haven't experienced any of these kinds of things or anything like that. I just, I don't even know if I have the Holy Spirit in my life. I would encourage you to approach the elders of the church and see if they would be willing to lay hands on you and pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit. Because this is what was done in the scriptures. How many today would like to receive the Holy Spirit? in their lives, and in this church, and have God's blessing op to operate and run this church and make it all that God wants it to be. You can raise your hand if you want it. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, that you have promised to do all these things. It's... Uh, it's a little bit scary. It's a little bit exciting, kind of like going up just at the crest of the roller coaster. Um, you don't know what the future holds, but you believe that there's a structure in place that can keep and guide the process so that it will be both exciting and have a good ending. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to come into this church now, Lord. 
We pray that he will pour out a special blessing on this congregation in its time of need so that by the time this roller coaster gets to the bottom, people will say, wow, that, that felt dangerous at the top, but it sure was an exciting ride. I ask for this blessing now in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.